The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Jack Kirkham, son of Arthur Jack Kirkham, inventor of the Spring Bar Tent. We talk about the history of the oldest tent maker in Utah and the resurgence in interest in heritage, USA-made outdoor gear. So welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And uh, joining me today is Jack Kirkham, uh, president and owner of Kirkham's Outdoor Products. Um, and I should say, you know, triple, triple A tent nonning, the spring bar tent. Um, thanks for joining me. I, I appreciate you Thank taking you. some time to be here. Um, this is especially fun for me. I, I mentioned this, this to you off air, but, um, you know, a lot of the conversations that we've had doing these oral histories, they're about companies outside of Utah. Um, and you know, I've, I've had some great interactions with, you know, products, you know, some of the, you know, products from some of these outdoor brands, but I feel an especially, you know, especially an attachment to spring bar. Um, and I told you a little bit, um, off air, you know, my, I was able to see my, my dad the other day and, and he got his first tent in the early seventies when he was 14, his, his dad bought him a spring bar tent and it was the scouter. And, uh, <laughs> we, we were able to set that up together the other day, as well as another spring bar that he got in the nineties that I slept in, um, going camping all the time. Um, and so I've, I have this attachment to, to spring bar tents and, uh, it's kind of fun to see the print on, on the, the, the scouter, the older model that still has triple a tent nonning <laughs> on it. Um, and, and we'll kind of get into the history of the company, but, um, sure. it's fun for me to be able to, to talk to you, um, about these products that I have an attachment to and, and especially, um, you know, Kirkham's and triple a tent nonning um in spring bar you know all of these names kind mm-hmm. of as one company being really one of the oldest outdoor companies in the state um i, I think browning holds that right browning's kind of the oldest probably yeah but, yeah but more on the firearm side right but i would have to say that that um triple a or or kirkham's is the oldest kind of out traditional outdoor brand in the state is that safe to say I think, yeah, I think, I think that is safe to say. I mean, because I'm, um, you know, any any of the others, I mean, any of the others, you know, around the time of AAA, you know, there, I mean, there could have somebody like Wolf Sporting Goods, but I mean, very, very largely Hunt and Fish, you know, and not really, you know, I don't see the very handful of companies, maybe back in the fifties, uh, that were around. Probably, I, I wouldn't see those as outdoor companies. More, you know, more like, like I said, hunt and fish. So right, yeah, and more retailers, right? Not not making their own products necessarily. Oh yeah, yeah. No, as far as manufacturing, yeah, I would. We definitely would would be the oldest, I think. Right. Well, and yeah. and for you, um, we're going to get into the history, but you're part of this larger family <clears throat> legacy. How does that feel to be part of? a family legacy, you know, of, of outdoor product makers. We'll, we'll get into that question. Maybe that's a good, good place to kind of wrap up the conversation, but no problem. Sure. Um, yeah. can, maybe we can peel back the curtain a little bit and go back in time. Uh, 1944. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So our, Arthur Jack Kirkham purchases AAA tent and awning in downtown Salt Lake city. Um, right. But you know, can you tell us a little bit about Arthur? Um, his background, how he got into, you know, what, what led him to this decision of buying a, a tent nonning company in Salt Lake? <laughs> yeah. Who would do that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so Arthur, Arthur Jack Kirkham, you know, was my dad. Um, for the record, he, he went by Jack. So, yeah. um, 
So anybody could refer to him as Jack. If he, he, he used to joke around, if somebody called and asked for Arthur, like don't ever take the call because they don't know me. Yeah. So, yeah. but um, I would say that trying to be as concise as I can, um, he, uh, my dad just always had an interest in art, in drafting. He, he liked, uh, he, he just, he, he liked laying things out. He liked, uh, he liked, you know, from his high school days, he liked anything art related. And, um, so that was just kind of a genetic thing, I guess. And when he was a teenager, his, uh, I believe it was his uncle had a tent nonning company. It wasn't AAA. It was actually a different company uh, called Spear Tent Nonning Company. And when my dad was a teenager, he got a job, I think, for a couple of summers hanging awnings for his uncle at the Spear Tent and Awning Company. And I'm pretty, you know, and so I think that he just, he got really attached to the idea of making something and taking it to the finish line, you know. So that was a, you know, that was a little bit of a background. I don't believe the spear tent nodding was around for too long. And then um, when my dad was not a lot older, uh, you know, I mean, when the war came on, uh, he he had some physical issues. So he, he, he wasn't able to like go on the front lines. But he went to work at a uh, at a naval shipyard as a draftsman and uh, started you know started uh, doing you know mechanical drawings and you know fairly sophisticated drafting work in the shipyard and he was just fascinated by you know how the pieces and the parts you know fit together of the whole thing and. Uh, uh, after the war, uh, he came back to Salt Lake, and uh, I think he just randomly saw that, you know, there was some guy selling AAA tent and awning company, and he remembered, you know, the awning business, and, and, and uh, I mean, they had a few sewing machines, and I don't know, he was just taken by the idea of taking a piece of fabric, you know, cutting it up and making it into something, and then finishing it. I mean, he, I just think he, he loved the idea, you know, just that feeling of fulfillment. And so, uh, uh, he made the, uh, you know, made the guy an offer on the business. I think he bought it for $5,000 mm. as far, you know, from what I recall. And he used to joke that, uh, um, he was so, you know, wet behind the ears really didn't know anything to speak of. He used to joke that he thought the guy was really selling it so he could buy buy it back at a cheaper price because he thought my dad would just totally fail, you know. <laughs> but he didn't. So <laughs> anyway, that's that's kind of the start of it. How long? How old was your your dad at that time to to be buying a company like this? Well, let's see. Uh, oh, that's a great question. I don't know. He was probably I don't know. He was probably maybe I don't know maybe like 30 years old, something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Pretty where, young, where did so. he, where did he learn how to do, do this drafting? Did he, did he go to some kind of formal, did he have some formal education and to pick up that skill? Uh, or? I think he took a couple classes in high school. He, he never went to college, took a couple classes in high school and then he, he bought books and uh, mostly self-taught. He's a smart guy. <laughs> well, it seems like school at that time, there was a lot of focus on like the technical education, right? Like learning these, these hands-on skills still at that time. Right? I, 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 I think there was a lot more of that. And, and so, I, yeah, I think it was pretty much in high school and self-taught. And then, uh, and then I know, you know, even, you know, from the stuff I have from his estate, he, you know, he had a bunch of books about, you know, how to do drafting and you know, how to do, you know, mechanical drawing and architectural stuff. So he had a real interest in all that. Hmm. Well, what was, uh, I guess, what was the state of, well, I guess before we get into the outdoor business, I guess when he was, you know, buying this company, do you happen to know if his intention was to just keep making was I'm assuming more commercial awnings. Was this more for businesses that needed an awning in front of their house? What what kind of products were were they making? 
Well, um, <clears throat> awnings were actually, you know, a pretty substantial part of the business at the time. And it was probably probably kind of a split between commercial and residential, you know. And, and, and honestly, a lot, a, a lot of the uh, – I mean, a lot of the requirement for awnings was – just really because there wasn't air conditioning, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at the time. So that's, I mean, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, awnings are, you know, they're commercial, they're kind of design driven. I mean, nobody needs them to cool a building down, but uh, so it was, it was, it was really driven by, you know, just like keeping the sun off the windows. And I, I know one of his first big jobs was, uh, and I don't, I can't remember, I don't know what they call it now, but it was called the Hotel Utah. And mm. I mean, pretty substantial thing at the time. I don't know. It was, I think it was, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14 story building. And I don't know. He did like, you know, I don't know, like 50, 60 awnings just for all the individual windows on the room. So uh, other products uh, were really more kind of almost agricultural, you know? I mean, there was a lot of business from, you know, like cattle people, sheep herders, you know, and a lot of those, you know, a a lot of the business was for, uh, a lot of it was for, you know, like wall tents, you know, the big traditional white wall tents and uh, what they used to call, you know, sheep herder tents, which was kind of a teepee style, like a pyramid tent and, uh, and then uh, sold a lot of tarps, you know, because a lot of the trucks at that time weren't enclosed. And so they used to sell a lot of tarps just for truckers to, you know, throw over their, throw over their loads. So it was kind of that. And I, and I, think, I think his desire at the time, I think he just wanted to, you know, like stay in business, not, not go broke. And he, he enjoyed it doing a lot. I don't know if he had a long-term vision <laughs> at the time, to be honest. <laughs> He just liked doing it. Yeah, that was that was kind of my next question is, you know, did did he have a passion for for the outdoors or did he have a connection to that? Or did he he was just more interested in the challenge of, of the product itself? And then the company naturally evolved into more of an outdoor business. I think what you just said, the latter, I think I think he was really kind of fascinated by working with fabrics and again taking something from start to finish improving products um i think um i don't think he had an outdoor passion maybe the same way i always have um because to him you know coming from the depression you know a lot of people didn't really want to go camping i mean they wanted to like have a house you know that was comfortable and you know, maybe a refrigerator, you know, and, yeah. and, and so camping was, was not always, you know, really a, a glamorous thing to a lot of people. Right. So I think he, he first liked the products, then he liked the business. Um, uh, after that kind of, you know, after a period of time, he, he came to, uh, you know, own a, a, you know, a decent sized little piece of property up by the woodland area you know, with where we had, you know, like a summer home and he spent a lot of time up and being outdoors. He did like to fish a little bit. So he did love the outdoors, but I don't think in maybe the same way that, you know, kind of the outdoor enthusiast did. So. Right. Well, I, I wonder if that influences the the brand and, and the product that would develop, right? The, the tent that we think of, the spring bar, um, it seems like it kind of grew out of more of a, a workwear focused, right? It's like you're talking about people who are sheep herders, right? Or people right. who are hauling stuff in the back of a truck or it's it seems more like like workwear rather than not workwear, but there's there's more <clears throat> of a focus on on work rather than recreation. Um which I imagine kind of there's a thread there um as the company evolves. You know, it kind of started with the basic products and then and then the public began to kind of ask and demand for better things that related to recreation. And my dad just, he just loved any challenge of doing something better and, and frankly making people happy. So, right. So when, when did, uh, I guess there's kind of a, a large period of time between 1944 and, and 61, right. When the spring bar 
you know, is, is invented or launches. Um, what, sure. you know, what are some of the other milestones during that time? Um, what, what was, you know, was he just kind of, you know, making products, responding to what people needed or were asking for? Are there any other like kind of key steps between the creation of that iconic product and, and, and really the company starting? Well, I mean, the spring bar tent really, really was definitely kind of a launch, you know, I would say in between that time, um, he just did a lot of, he, he just, he, I think he became known as a person that just did everything probably a little bit better, you know, and, and put a lot of focus on customers, a lot of focus on quality. Um, one of the inventions that he did that was, I guess, a bit iconic at the time was he invented uh, an, a thing called the heat return unit, which was basically a, a sort of a contraption that hooked on the front of, uh, you know, like a uh, like a bulldozer or a caterpillar type thing, and it it would bring the heat back to the operator because a lot of those machines didn't have enclosed cabs at the time, and so he actually invented that and patented that and uh, sold a whole bunch of them. You know, I, I mean, and it was it was kind of out there a little bit as far as anything to do with outdoors or whatever, but, but it did relate to, you know, kind of the commercial industry and the sewing and working with a lot of those customers. So, but I, I think, you know, a lot of it was just, just kind of just passionately wanting to do just better. And then also, you know, prior to the spring bar tent, I, I think a recognition that, the outdoor industry was going to become something, you know, because right after the war, I mean, people started wanting recreation. And so my dad, you know, started, you know, I mean, it was fairly small, but I mean, he started bringing in, you know, other tent brands, you know, anything that was more of a, you know, a recreational camping tent, sleeping bags, stoves, things like that. Um, uh, you know, so I, I think he kind of formed a, you know, kind of got a foundation of the whole thing going. And again, doing a great job with his customers, you know, everything he did, he was just, he was really passionate about, you know, about quality, doing things well. He was innovative. So, I mean, you know, even if it was like, how do you reinforce a corner and do a great job putting a grommet in? I mean, my dad was the guy that, that really cared about that stuff. Right. Well, I, I guess that's a, a good question is when did he start selling outdoor products? And I guess when did Kirkham's, the outdoor retailer, um, come to be? You know, you had AAA that, you know, was making making the tents, making the products. Yeah, when, right. when was there the outdoor retailer component? When did that come to be? Well, I mean, he was selling, as I said, he was selling, you know, outdoor products, I guess you could say, even, even in the late 40s, 50s, you know, um, you know prior to to the spring bar tent uh, so he was always doing that i mean as far as like really becoming you know like specifically an outdoor store uh, that probably that would probably have started i guess with our move to state street which would have been you know 78 79 okay. somewhere around there and and that was that was a conscious thing where you know of course I was working with him, I mean, doing a lot of this stuff really at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I think we felt like, you know, the awning business was going to be, you know, pretty restrictive and kind of a flat business. It was, it was, I think in its day it was good, but it was pretty tough getting tough because, you know, really labor intensive and custom. And so we just saw this surge in interest in the outdoor industry. And, and that's when I was really becoming more involved in the business, you know, and I was seeing a lot of the exciting stuff coming from those companies, like you're saying in Boulder and, you know, Denver area, probably San Francisco, you know, I was kind of excited about that, the backpacking, all that. And so, so we decided when we moved in 79, you know, that we we're going to have like, you know, like a big showroom and start carrying that stuff. So, I mean, it definitely 
was kind of small to start out with and then, you know, got a lot bigger as time went on. Do you happen to know what some of the other outdoor brands at the time in, in Utah could have been? I, you know, I've told you I've been really interested <clears throat> in trying to track down, you know, the, the history is really well documented around other sure. hotspots of gear around the country, Denver, Boulder, Seattle. Sure. San Francisco, sure. Utah, it's sometimes it feels like our history starts in 89 with black diamond. Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah and that's, right. that's where, for a lot of people where I feel like the history starts. Um, yeah. but, but it should be traced back to, to Browning in the late 1800s and then, sure. you know, more on the, on the camping side, um, with, with you all right in 44. Um, yeah, but right. the history is a little fuzzy. It's, it seems like there's, yeah. there's gotta be a few companies that fell through the cracks or the history is not documented. Uh, do you happen to know of, of other companies, even retailers that, that were functioning in, in those early days, you know, in the forties, fifties, sixties? Well, yeah, I, I, I really, I mean, honestly, I don't recall any manufacturing companies, you know, back in those days, Utah manufacturing companies. I just, I just don't, I mean, there might've been a little handful here and there, but I mean, they would have been way, way, way small. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it it would be more retailers. I mean, the, the more notable one would have been, you know, uh, there was a company called Wolf's Sporting Goods, um, which I guess, you know, I, I guess, you know, I remember they, you know, when we started selling more outdoor related stuff, I think they kind of saw us as being sort of the upstart company and, you know, like, what are these guys doing? Who do they think they are? You know, so uh, there would have been Wolf Sporting Goods. And then, uh, uh, of course, you know, like Smith and Edwards, but Smith and Edwards is such a diverse bunch of stuff i mean yeah and more army army surplus right which is where a lot of kind of outdoor companies started right right yeah those are the only two that really come to mind to be honest with you and they were you know they were both retailers but as far as an actual manufacturer man i just i don't know i don't know anybody else you know you might be right i mean uh, other than us it might have been you know might have been somebody like black time Hmm, interesting. Well, it's something that I'm trying to dig into a little bit more and, and yeah, uh, yeah. Trying, trying to find some of that lost history if it if it is out there. Um, I'll do the same if I, if I come across anything. You know, and, and some of what I've been digging into is, you know, outdoor brands usually follow the outdoor enthusiasts, right? So I've really been digging into the, the Wasatch Mountain Club, um, which has been around for over 100 years, right? We, we, you know, the Wasatch Mountain Club was functioning, um, you know, you know, really 1920s till now. Um, and it sure. seems like a lot of those brands usually follow the people who are up in the mountains and actively playing mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, getting up there. Yeah. And so I've, I've actually been digging through their records a little bit to try to find, okay, is there any mention of someone you know, from this group who ended Some up record. starting a company. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, there's a lot of yeah. records to look through, but I'm still looking, but I think Wolf's is, is yeah. one of the sporting goods stores that pops up, you know, in, in some of the, yeah. Yeah. the, um, newsletters that I've read from that, that right. group, but so it, it'll take some digging, but, yeah. yeah. um, so kind of back to, back to spring bar. Um, do you, do you know some of the origins of, of that product? Kind of where that idea came from, the unique, um, you know, frame system. Do you, do you know where some of that came from, the inspiration? or? Well, I think the, you know, and, and my dad and I, of course, talked about this a lot. But um, I think the inspiration really came from, you know, from AAA starting to sell recreational tents and the recreational tents that were largely available at that time were what we would call a cabin style tent, you know, which would be kind of like, like three ridge poles supported by six upright poles, you know, um, sort of a, you know, kind of a little friendlier version of a traditional wall tent. Mm -hmm. And so that's all that was available. And we carried those and, I think the inspiration came from my dad talking to customers who constantly said, these things are really hard to set up. I hate setting these up. They're really a bummer, you know, and it would sure be nice if there was something easier to set up. And, you know, my dad just, he could not pass anything 
up like that. He couldn't pass up the challenge. And so according to him, you know, he just kept hearing this and hearing this. And I mean, it sounds kind of goofy, but I mean, it, it's, it's almost like, I don't know. I think he processed a lot of this, you know, processed it over who knows a year, two years, three years. And I mean, he said, he just kind of literally <laughs> sat down at a table and drew this picture of an idea. It's like, well, I wonder if this would work, you know? And I mean, kind of as simple as that. So he drew this picture and then he thought, you know, I think that makes sense. And so he had somebody build one. Now, now back then the frame was on the inside of the tent, but it was the same basic idea. I mean, functionally it worked the same. So he had somebody build one, and I remember he was working with, uh, you know, a factory guy who had been with us, who was with us for probably 60 years, and uh, uh, I, th you know, I think one other, you know, person at the time, they made the tent and they set it up, and both of them said, "Well, this thing's really stupid. It's really hard to set up. We don't think you'll ever sell any of these," you know. And my dad was just like, "Well, yeah, but you know, you." You have to kind of know the process. You have to explain it to people because it really is easy. You're just going about it the wrong way. So uh, that was the inspiration. He made one tent, and then he was just convinced that we would sell these things. So I think he said on his first run, he made six tents. You know, the frames were all handmade. And then he hand-sold every one of them, you know. And it just kind of went from there. <laughs> So was he was he selling a lot of these? Did he have a team that was selling a lot? How much was he involved in in manufacturing? I imagine early days he was doing a lot of it, but um, at what oh, yeah. point did he kind of step aside from doing some of that? Well, my, I mean, my dad was definitely a he was a cut and sew guy. You know, mm -hmm. he he definitely was. I mean, he was. I mean, honestly, he you know he might have you know he I, I don't really even know for sure, but I mean, he very likely could have. Uh, you know, made the first pattern, cut the first tent, sewed the first tent, made the frame. I mean, he very likely could have or probably did do the whole thing. Um, I would say he stepped away probably after we moved to Fifth South, you know, with a kind of an expanded showroom and, and wanted to make a thing out of the Spring Bar brand. And at that time, you know, I mean, in, or in the early days, I think I think he only had maybe one or two sewers in that first little shop. But then when we moved to Fifth South, I mean, we had this crazy building with, you know, I think it was an old auto dealership. And so we had way more retail space than we needed. We had offices all over the place and, and a great big crazy old factory that went in a big L shape all the way from Fifth South over to Main Street, you know. Mm. And so I think he saw the possibilities and started, you know, having a lot of success with the tents, you know, again, not huge numbers, but, you know, he would make six and then sell them in a couple of weeks. It's like, wow, people really want these, you know? And mm -hmm. so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think, I think he stepped back when we, you know, mostly, mostly when we kind of enlarged that factory footprint, you know, back in the, you know, kind of the early to mid sixties when we moved to Pitt South. Right. So, you know, what, what was some of the early response to the tent? Like, I mean, you alluded to some of this, right? Like he's just started to make them and slowly sure. but surely people started to pick them up. What, what was the appeal um, for people? Was it that ease of, ease of setting them up? Um, what were some of the features people liked at that time? Well, <clears throat> people like the ease of setting the tents up. And then the tents, um, the byproduct of the design was a lot more stability, you know, because the old camping tents really, you know, generally speaking, were not very stable in the wind. Or if you made them stable, you know, you had to use a bunch of guy ropes and things like that. So, you know, again, ease of setting up, stability. And then he really, I think he had a, a much better eye and feel for materials, using nicer materials, you know. I think he was he was probably one of the first people to use what we would uh, kind of, you know, loosely refer to as a dry finish 
on a fabric because a lot of the old tents, a lot of the tents, and, and some of even probably some of his earlier tents at the time, to make the fabric water repellent, um, you know, basically a lot of the fabrics were, you know, kind of a loosely woven fabric with, you know, sort of a heavy, like a paraffin-based, you know, wax material, you know, sort of like the old military tents. And that was the kind of fabric that was available. And, and again, I think a big appeal for the spring bar tents when he first kind of got things going was, you know, using a dry finish, using a better quality material that, you know, was, you know, they weren't meant to be backpacking, but they were more compact. They were cleaner. They were just nicer, you know, so. Right. What, what was the, I guess, what was the original tent, spring bar tent shape? Is it the one that you traditionally think of or what, what was that initial, is it kind of the classic design that, that we see mostly today? Well, no, the original, the original design really would have been more like, more like your, your dad's tent, more like that blue, more like the scouter. Okay. uh, Yeah, almost exactly like that, you know, just in a variety of sizes. I know that um, uh, even still with that internal frame, we, we had a size up to one time that was like 10 feet by 17 feet. So yeah, but I mean, they look just like that, you know, that's how they looked. And then um, some people did complain a bit about, you know, having to crawl inside the tent to set it up, even though they were easier than most tents, they were still not ideal. And that's when he came up with, uh, you know, basically, well, let's take this same concept, you know, the concept of, you know, basically supporting the tent, you know, with these flexible bars, you know, and, you know, like just a single upright on each side, let's take that to the outside of the tent. And so, you know, that was, uh, that would have been kind of late, I think, you know, late sixties or early seventies. And, uh, and that's what we stuck with because it was just it was just a lot easier to set up. The stability was still really good, and uh, hope that answered the question. Yeah, it did. Uh, it seems like an interesting time for tents in general. Uh, kind of early '60s, moving into the '70s, um, and even maybe a little bit before that. Some of, in some of our other conversations, we've talked about the the, the companies like well, like Warm Light. Jack Stevenson's mm-hmm. warm light, right? And, and the innovations that he was bringing to tent design and largely sure. tents, more of the backpacking mountain tents up and up until that point, right? Were more the A-frame. Um, mm-hmm. And a Jack Stevenson came in and, and started to bring aerodynamics from his background in, in engineering. He started to make a more aerodynamic tent sure. and, and brought arches, right? And, and, and more flexible poles mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, like or like like moss tents. If, right. If you yeah, study. moss. Um, right. So it seems like an interesting time in general where people are starting to get access to materials that allow them to do very different things with tents. Right. You don't have to just do the the traditional A frame anymore. Sure. Right. It, sure. Is that safe right. to say? Do you feel like materials really played a part in kind of this change in tent structures? Yeah, I think. Um, I think it was kind of a combination. I, I agree that the aspect of materials really facilitated that, but I also, but there was, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, have to go to your, you know, some other department at the university to, to figure that out. But I mean, there was, you know, there was this big thing about back to nature, you know, I mean, people, you know, that was driving a lot of recreation and I think there was just this feeling that, well, you know, if we're going to get back to nature, we have to get far away, you know. And if we have to get far away, it has to be lightweight materials, you know. And if we're going to get far away, we have to make sure these tents don't fall down and they're more comfortable, you know. So I, I think, you know, I think the, the, the back to nature thing, and the, I mean, really, it was, it was a huge kind of crazed trend, you know, the whole backpacking thing. Uh, I think it just really drove so much of that design stuff. It was just, you know, just rampant. And, and, and we started working with a lot of that at, you know, at Kirkham's AAA, you know, and, and that's something you wouldn't want to forget in the history because we, you know, we made and sold a ton of lightweight tents. I mean, mm. and there was there was definitely a period of time where we probably sold 
more tents, you know, made out of nylon synthetic materials than we than canvas materials. So mm. we're kind of part of that whole deal. Yeah, and how you know, it sounds like that was there was definitely a boom there. Um, it seems like we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, Spring bars kind of come back to its roots, right? Um, you yeah. know, m- moving back to the to the canvas and away from the nylons right. and. Um, it was kind of funny, you know, I, I sent you those pictures, right. Of we've got right. the, the scouter from the seventies and the, the nylon, I'm not sure the mo- the name of the model from the nineties that we had there. Um, yeah, it probably had a number, not a name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got the model number. I, I could send that yeah. to you, but, um, yeah. you know, interesting to see those side by side. Um, you know, so I guess maybe does that kind of define maybe those next few decades, right? So spring bar comes out um, and then the company starts to experiment, right? And you've, you've got the canvas models, but you're also playing with, you know, trying to get into the backpacking space. What, you know, what are some of the other defining, um, you know, moments from that time or experiences from that time? Because um, is that when you started to get more involved? When did you st- start to get into the business? Well, I mean... I started working in the business when I was 14 years old. So yeah. um, we can do a little math here, but let's, let's say it's over 50 years, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I was, uh, I was, I was, I was, I was the guy pulling for progress, you know? And so I was, I was the guy like right hooked into the, you know, the, you know, the love generation, the hippies back to nature. It's like, Hey dad, we should make these out of lightweight material. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Really? You know? Yeah. Yeah, we should. And so I, I think that that was kind of a big, a big thing that I was involved in, you know, developing, you know, uh, well, not only the traditional spring bar, you know, frame into lightweight tents, but, you know, I mean, we came up with, I came up with, you know, a lot of other designs that we sold under the spring bar brand uh, or the umbrella. I mean, you know, some that would be more, you know, kind of high end traditional dome tents and, and some that would be, you know, considered, I guess, kind of ultralight minimalist tents. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a big part of things. And uh, that probably really, I would say kind of the heyday of that would have been like maybe 1980 to maybe 95, something like that. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a big part of our business. I mean, and, and so those two kind of held side by side, the customer bases were, I would say largely kind of different, you know, uh, for the two, because a lot of people, you know, back then, you know, if you were this one type of person, you know, you used a lightweight tent, that's what you had in your trunk. And, you know, just like your dad or your grandpa used a canvas tent. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I drifted off there with the thought. But no, that's great. Hopefully, I, yeah. So, what when you started working with the company? What what is it that you did? Were you? I mean, you were fourteen, right? Um, right. Did you, you did you just grow up? That that was just what you knew, right? You just knew that you were a part of this business. Um, what was that kind of for you? Did did you embrace that expectation? Was there an expectation that you would become a part of this and and grow up in it? Um, how did that feel growing up in that? Um, whether there was an expectation or not, I loved I loved growing up in it. I mean, you know, working in a factory. I mean, it was just exciting. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the, you know, the I mean, I you know, I did. I never really was a sewer, to be honest with you, but, uh, uh, you know, my first jobs had a lot to do with like folding and inspecting tents, you know, putting grommets in tarps, you know, things like that. Uh, just doing what we call finishing work in the factory. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. I, I just, I, I always loved working. Um, I don't think I really had an expectation to come up in the business at that time. In fact, you know, I was probably like a lot of other kids, you know, it's like, well, you don't want to do what your dad does, you know? So I always had this aspiration to maybe be an architect or something like that. And so I think once, once I really was able to have an influence on things that we were making and selling and that tied in with my passion for the outdoors, because I really did. I always have, I mean, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, 
was talking to my wife a while back. I mean, when when we were, you know, when I was first working at AAA, I mean, you know, I mean, some sometimes I would I would spend 100, 120 nights a year in a tent, you know, and I loved it. So, but uh, yeah, did that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely did. Yeah. Um, maybe share a little bit kind of your journey, um, you know, different kind of these different roles that you ended up taking and, and then, you know, what led you to your current role today? You know, what was that time well, frame? Well, I was, uh, I started out, uh, I love to tell people my first job was cleaning the bathrooms. So, uh, which, you know, in the old store on Fifth South probably hadn't been cleaned for a couple of months. So I cleaned the bathrooms, I vacuumed the stairs and then, started working in the factory, probably worked in the factory. And, and that, and that was like summer full time, you know, and then I loved it so much. I'd go to work with my dad on Saturdays so I could work like five hours in the factory, you know, once a week and then full time in the summer. So I did that. And then, um, then I started on the sales floor probably when I was, you know, like maybe probably 18 years old. Uh, actually 17, 18, working on the sales floor, you know, selling stuff, writing up custom orders, you know, for, you know, different things that we made. And uh, then probably I think about the time I hit 21, uh, everybody said, hey, well, we kind of need a production manager. Like nobody is like really keeping track of this stuff or um, might be good to have somebody like, you know, actually – not just, you know, doing the production stuff, but as a manager. So I was a pretty young production manager, you know, at probably age 21. Then we moved to State Street and uh, State Street, I don't know. I was, you know, I was like kind of like sales manager, production manager, sort of both at this, you know, at that time. I mean, my dad was involved. He likes to joke about, you know, he used, we used to joke about when he said he turned the business over to me and like his year was a little different than mine, <laughs> you know, mine was a lot earlier, but uh, so he wasn't terribly involved in day-to-day -day stuff, even when we moved over to state street. Cause I, I you know, I was kind of running the show. So I was doing, factory work, managing the sales force, managing the factory. And I don't know, I really kind of kept doing all that stuff as the business grew. You know, I just, you know, ended up delegating more of that stuff, you know. So, for example, you know, the retail team, you know, we finally ended up with, you know, like an actual retail manager, you know. And so, uh, you know, the retail manager would report to me and then we would have, you know, a production manager who would report to me. So I guess we got a little more like like a real business. But I mean, I always, you know, I just always kept a hand in all that stuff. And actually, I, you know, right up to the time that we moved away from State Street, uh, I mean, I was still doing a lot of the buying because I just loved the products and, and that. So, uh, but then, um, yeah, so I don't know if you know much about the recent history, but uh, Pace and Dwell bought the Spring Bar brand. They brought the sewing team over here. And uh, yeah, I'm... I'm kind of on the A team, but I'm, I'm, I am an employee, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe share a little bit about when some of that happened. Um, the company got, got bought. Uh, when, when did some of that happen and, and what was that experience like? Oh, pretty recent, really. Um, I sold the building on State Street uh, basically about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, we just... Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was the, the you know, the, re the whole combination, the whole package was just a tough one, you know, from the, you know, the competitive side, you know, the overhead, everything. I mean, it, it, it was the perfect thing for about 20 years, but, you know, with the, you know, with the onset of online sales in particular, and uh, really, I think a, lo a lot more businesses getting more focused. I mean, we were, we were kind of, 
uh, I don't know, not a, not the ideal size. We're a little bit too much in the middle, you know, because, you know, from the, the brick and mortar standpoint, you know, you get people like Shields and, you know, where people can walk in and there's a billion of this and a billion of that. And so we couldn't really have the selection maybe on the retail stuff that people wanted. And, uh, but, you know, the overhead was high. So, you know, we just needed, I just needed to make a change. So, uh, yeah. So fortunately I sold the building about a year ago and, um, pace, you know, and, and the guys here at dwell, uh, you know, I think we, we wrapped up the purchase, you know, of the brand. It was maybe just six months or so before that, you know, it was kind of a dicey time, you know, trying to, you know, like, because I actually wrapped up the deal with them before I even knew I had the building sold. So that was, uh, that was kind of scary because we, I mean, they bought, you know, the manufacturing and the brand and everything. And so we, we knew all along that we were going to move, you know, the factory over here. And uh, I just didn't know if I was going to still own a building and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do if I did. So, (laughs) you know, so maybe what what's the history of some of the manufacturing? A, a lot of the product was made in the U.S., sewn in the U.S. Um, I imagine was was some of your more nylon backpacking product was that overseas or was that here in the U.S.? You mentioned some of it coming back. What what's some of the the timeline of some of the manufacturing history? Well. Um, the okay, so all of the all of the nylon synthetic and synthetic tents that we sold were all made in the U.S. Um, you know, we 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 never really, as you know, as I was the owner, as Kirkham's or AAA, we never got to, we never really got to the point where we were able to you know do direct importing or anything like that. So, and 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 at the time, I mean, it made perfect sense because it's like people weren't really doing that, you know. Right. back in the 70s or whatever. So right. all of those products were made in the U.S. We actually made a bunch of other stuff too. You know, we made, you know, we made like day packs. We made some little backpacks. We made, uh, I mean, you know, we made gators. We made, you know, all kinds of little bags and duffel bags, all kinds of stuff. It was all made in the U.S. And, and actually a lot of that stuff we continued to make really right up until we moved away from State Street. We continued to do that, uh, but we did stop making the backpacking tents because they just kind of hit that point in time where it was very obvious that, you know, you had to make your tents. Um, you really had to make that product offshore. It just had to be made offshore. I mean, they, you know, uh, you know, China and some of these other countries just they they had developed the manufacturing and you know they had they they just they just kind of you know they just leapfrogged ahead of us you know as they have and you know with shoes and shirts and everything else you know so once that became apparent we just decided well let's just keep making the canvas tents because you know there's still nothing quite like that and uh, people still wanted them. So we just said, let's take that manufacturing and do canvas tents, you know, and then we still did ball tents and a lot of the bags and things like that. And, uh, you know, that's when we started buying those, you know, we just started buying, you know, the North Face and Marmot and all those brands and selling them at Kirkham's. So. Right, right. So, you know, on we, we talked about this as well, a little bit offline, but, um, you know, people's interests, especially in the outdoors and, 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 uh, well, just in everything, right. Being circular and, mm-hmm. uh, what's old becomes new and, and right. over and over. Right. Um, ha- have you seen a, a renewed interest in, in, in spring bar product? And what do you attribute that to? Is it, is it the USA made? Is it the, the kind of the heritage look? Is it a combination? What, what is it that you think, you know, and and has there been a kind of a resurgence in, in interest in these kinds of products? I feel like the demand is kind of a continuation and a resurgence because we just can't keep them in stock. I mean, you know, uh, so the the desire is very strong. Um, I hate to bring up the C COVID word, but uh, I think that I think that's had some impact maybe on some of the recent resurgence just because 
I think people just, they, they need to get out. They want to get out, you know? Um, so we have seen a lot of that. As far as the brand goes, I just think that, uh, um, you know, I mean, we've been out there for a long time and we've made a lot of people happy. And so I think people, uh, yeah, I, to answer your question, I, I, I think there's kind of a trend for people to maybe want to buy less stuff, not, not buy stuff so often, but maybe buy something that uh, is more lasting, you know. And I don't know what drives that. It's hard to say. Maybe that's just a cyclical thing, but maybe it's the fact that, you know, uh, you know, for so many years, I mean, so much stuff was so disposable, you know, and not, not to, I won't bring any brands up, you know, but I mean, you know, like companies that, you know, where you can, you know, people, you know, they buy a, they buy a new wardrobe every month, you know, cause they can afford that. But you know, the stuff shrinks and it doesn't work very well and it's kind of disposable. And so there's been a lot of that out there, you know, or people, you know, you can buy a great big, great big, huge dome tent at some place for $99. And I just think people have kind of gone through the cycle of, you know, maybe being kind of frustrated or a little disillusioned by, you know, not having good experiences with this stuff. And so I think there is a trend for people to say, you know what, if I want to do this, let's do it. So we have a good experience. And so we enjoy it. And, and so I think they kind of think of our brand just because we've kind of been doing that all along, you know, I mean, that's kind of part of the heritage is, you know, I mean, we're not perfect and we've probably, I'm sure we've made a few people unhappy, but for the most part, you know, the reputation is that this stuff works. And so I think people now, I think maybe more than ever want things that work, you know, as opposed to just a thing. And there's always going to be those people, you know, there's going to be like, oh man, I have to go camping on this thing and for three nights and, you know, they'll go to a discount place and, you know, buy a thing that they can sleep in for three nights and then they're done with it. But uh, uh, people just want more than that. So, Right. It it seems like there's yeah. also kind of this inherent, like underlying sustainability story to to the brand too, right? Where it's made in the U.S., so you're not having to buy something that's you know being put on a boat and being shipped over, and um, you know, but at the same time, it's more sustainable because it's going to last longer. And I and I and I think it's 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 really interesting. I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but I I, I mean, I think the aspect of made in USA. It's, it's a little complicated, you know, because I think there's a segment of people, I mean, they probably can't explain it. They, it's just like, that's what I want. And they maybe can't explain it. I think some people feel like it's better quality if it's made in the USA. And I think, you know, some people feel, you know, they feel that, you know, that the sense of, you know, that, you know, like somebody that lives in the U.S., is making this thing. So you're, you know, so you're supporting jobs and things like that. Uh, it's a bit complicated, but uh, overall, I just, I, I, there just seems to be a tremendous interest in it. Right. Well, if, if people haven't seen, I'm going to push them to your website, just the springbar.com website, that, that video that you have playing on there is, is, is great just to see the factory floor that you've got, um, floor that you have. Um, it's beautifully shot and I think it really emphasizes the craftsmanship. I mean, I love seeing the faces of the people that are sewing, um, you know, seeing those, those close up shots of them doing, you know, these things and, and putting these products together. I think it really brings back that idea that, um, just this level of craftsmanship, right? Um, well, yeah, and, 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 also, and, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe to a certain extent, you know, just the fact that, that you're, you're, you know, you're really connecting with somebody like there is somebody like behind that door, like really doing this. And, and I know who they are and maybe I have some idea of where they live and they probably have a family, you know, I think people just, they really, I think, I think a lot of people like that idea too. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that, that was really well done. We'll, we'll add a link to that, um, in the sure. description for this episode, but, um, what, where do you, I guess, where do you see the future? I know you're, you're, you know, you're, the company's been bought. 
what do you kind of see as the future of, of Spring Bar um, and, and the company in general moving into the future? I guess what, what gets you out of bed? What, what excites you about um, what's coming next for the company? Well, um, hopefully I'll be around here for quite a while, you know, so I, my, my plan is to be involved, you know, and I'm involved full time right now. So, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not just a guy like, you know, with an office. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm pretty, I'm very involved in, you know, product development and, uh, you know, the whole production side of things. Um, what do I see? Well, I guess number one, <laughs> this doesn't sound too exotic, but first and foremost, we, we just got to try to figure out how to make more stuff um, because the demand is just totally outstripping the supply. So uh, a big part of our future will be, you know, to get more sewers and to try to, you know, streamline the production process, you know, see if we can figure out what the bottlenecks are, make things more efficiently and make more things again to fill the demand. So that's a big thing. Um, uh, we are cautiously working on, you know, some new product ideas. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be too specific about them, but I, I think, I, th I think what we'll do is we'll hopefully we'll, you know, I'll be working on new products and we won't see maybe so many products, but the products that we roll out will be kind of more meaningful, you know, and, you know, more, hopefully kind of more iconic. Um, uh, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. That's exciting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, and then we, we should mention, um, you know, Jack, Jack passed away in 2008. Um, what, what do you think, you know, I'm sure you had a lot of conversations with him about the company, uh, the direction, <laughs> What do you feel like, did he, or did he ever share with you kind of how he felt about the company, about his legacy, about his place in, in kind of the history of, of the industry? Maybe not in those terms, but um, yeah, is yeah. there anything that, that like that, that you were able to talk with him about? Oh yeah. I mean, we, we, we talked about everything. I think that, um, I mean, I, I, he just, he just really wanted to make good stuff. He wanted to make good stuff and he always wanted to make it better. And he really, really just passionately cared about people having a good experience. I mean, it just really meant a lot to him, you know? So I think as he, you know, he got a little bit older and, you know, had a chance to, you know, maybe drive around a few campgrounds. I mean, if he, you know, I remember, if, you know, they would, wow, we went to this, you know, we went to a campground up in the Uintas and there were, there were three spring bar tents up there. And I, I mean, I think that was a, that was a, a visceral thing for him. I mean, he, you know, he, he just loved the idea that, you know, I made those people happy, you know, they're, they're having a better experience than somebody else. And, uh, I mean, that was, that was a real thing to him. And, and I definitely, I, I kind of caught that bug. <laughs> yeah. Well, but yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, and I mean, I, you know, and kind of an aside to that, I mean, he really, uh, you know, I mean, not to overstate it or, you know, like, I mean, he really cared a lot about his employees. So I think, I think the fact that, you know, I mean, you know, he used to say, you know, probably like a lot of old guys say, like, or like I've said, you know, I never missed a payroll, you know, and always treated people fair, you know. And so I, that was very important to him. But I think the tent part of it was really just, you know, just making things that work for people. Always, you know, whether it was just some little detail, always improving, you know, always thinking progressively, not just saying, well, yeah, people want these, and so this is good enough. Always, always thinking ahead, improving, making people happy, and, uh, you know, just making good quality. That's great. That's a yeah. great legacy. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, a few of those things that you mentioned, like, are felt by people like me who still get to enjoy, you know, even some of the products that were made 
50 years ago, right? They're, they're still holding sure. up. So he's definitely they are. Yeah. Kept <laughs> the promise of, of making good stuff, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Still kicking. And even though, you know, we had to, you know, have a few things repaired or replaced, they're, they're still right, going right. strong, right? Um, That's right. Which, which is great. Um, well, this has been, you know, I think for me, one of the most fun conversations just because of the attachment that I have to, to the brand or the products. Thank you. Um, but any parting thoughts, anything that we missed before we kind of wrap it up? Oh man. Yeah. I think we've, I think we've covered it. <laughs> we've covered it pretty okay. well. Well, I, I just appreciate you taking time and being willing to share, share the story. It's um, it's such an important company to not only to, the brand or to Utah, but you know, I think to the outdoor industry. So I appreciate Thank you sharing you. the yeah. story. Well, I, I appreciate it, Chase. And uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the interest in it. Really do. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley. Mm-hmm.